Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right, today we have the story of Tabor Rubin, and this is a wild story. There's a lot to it, so I'm just going to dive in. Rubin was born in Hungary before the Second World War, and being from Jewish descent, would spend time in the Mauthausen concentration camp during the Second World War. He would survive, I want to say it was over a year of captivity in a concentration camp, would be freed by the Americans, and in 1948 would immigrate to the United States. So crazy story there. You can just stop there, of course. Um, Very few people have that experience. But he gets to the United States and tries pretty early on to enlist in the army and gets a little help from a buddy uh, to, to work through one of the tests and and makes it and very quickly finds himself um, a part of the, I want to say India Company, part of the 8th Cavalry Regiment tied to the 1st Cavalry Division, and they are heading to Korea to see combat. So we'll back off and we'll talk Korean War here for a minute. After Korea was held by Japan during and or at the conclusion of the Second World War, and the way territories held by Germany and Japan were divvied up is how it's happened throughout history. The winning sides divide the territories of the losing side. You know, that's the best way to say it is divide up. And the way that Korea was divided up was we decided let's cut it right in half. And that half point is the 38th parallel. And we're going to say that south of that is under the influence, mentorship, guidance, whatever it might be, of the United States, Great Britain, and and the Western allies. And the north would be under the guidance of, in reconstruction, sort of, of the Soviet Union. What that meant around the world in every one of these cases was the countries that were, or cities even, that were tied to the United States started moving towards a democratic style of government, more Western style government. And then those associated with the Soviet Union would find themselves heading down the path or would immediately be on the path of a communist um, structure of government. That's the case in Korea. You have the North as the Communist Party has a Communist Party in power in the South is more of a republic or democratic republic and um, or democracy, I think is probably the right way to say that. In 1950, in June of 1950, forces from North Korea invade. So they decide both both sides um, viewed themselves as the legitimate government of Korea. They both viewed this boundary as being temporary and in 1950, in June of 1950, the North said, well, we're just going to, we're going to take it. So North Korea moves into South Korea. Um, it's an aggressive move. The international community comes together under this new organization called the United Nations and says, this is an act of aggression. We have to band together to stop this. So a bunch of countries uh, contribute militarily. The United States will contribute 90% of the military force. So it's, you know, it's, a, it's an international move 
Um, but the U.S. is definitely going to bear a heavy burden here, as will the military and people of South Korea. There's going to be a lot of fighting in South Korea. We, we, easy to overlook that. American forces are moved, I mean, very quickly, like inside of a month are, are sent to Korea to stop this North Korean attack that is moving from north to south um, in an attempt to completely overrun the country and and make it now a part of Korea. I don't think it would be called North Korea at that point. I think it would just be called Korea. Um U.S. forces get there. They tie in with South Korean forces, or I should say the United Nations forces tie in with the South Korean forces, and they start to fight. But, man, they are outnumbered. They, uh, The equipment that North Korea has at this point is a little better, but they at least have it, and they have more of it. They're more trained on it. This is, you know, immediately post-Second World War, the United States was kind of drawing down. We weren't certainly weren't at the same capacity we were five years earlier um, as the Second World War was still raging. We do what we've always done, and most nations do after a war is concluded. You draw down your force. You you let people go home. You end their enlistments. You get rid of your excess equipment. The innovation, one of the big things immediately following wars, it's oftentimes very, very hard to continue to drive innovation forward because you have to somehow think of the next conflict right as you just wrapped up this previous one. So the U.S. is not in peak warfighting shape in 1950 when this kicks off. So when they land on the peninsula, they move forward to to stop this North Korean attack, and it's just not successful. The North Koreans just continue to push further and further south into South Korea, and it's forcing the Americans and the United Nations to draw back they end up in an area on the southeast coast of South Korea, and it's it's this little perimeter that uh, ends up being referred to as the Pusan, Pusan perimeter, and it's it's like an Alamo position. It's their last toehold. Now there's some big ports there, which is why the Americans are able to why they're holding on to that. It's it can be reinforced with um, material and men, and you can evacuate folks out. and And the U.S. still has a substantial advantage in air power, but I mean, the first few months of this war was a case of the U.S., the U.N., and South Korea, like on the brink of defeat for for months, for a couple of months here. Now, we're, I'm going to bounce back and forth a little bit uh, to tie in parts of Ruben's story, and, and this is the first good piece to dive into. It's during this retreat that there's going to be something called a rear guard action, where if you think of a unit, if it's if there's a fight and one unit gets up and runs away, they're at risk at, at getting mowed down. There's no defense anymore. The enemy can just overrun them as they're retreating. So often you'll see units conduct something called a rear guard action where they'll leave a small group behind to some degree, maybe not far behind, that will at least keep the enemy occupied. You know you're not going to hold out. You know you're not going to defeat them. But if you can at least keep the enemy occupied, they can't focus on massacring your troops as they retreat. As American forces are kind of pulling back, it's kind of a constant rear guard action. So that's just kind of what's happening all across the front. And during this period, Ruben is in one of these positions where he is, he's kind of holding back what ends up being wave after wave after wave of North Korean attackers 
pretty much by himself. He's, and, and by doing so, then his unit's allowed to move back, you know, one more hillside back or, or one better defensive position or reconsolidate, whatever it might be. Save a lot of lives doing that. Anytime you're conducting a rear guard action, you're going to save a lot of lives. Or at least that's the idea. He is, based off this action, it is suggested that he's recommended for the Medal of Honor. It's the, some folks that, officers that saw it and were familiar with it said, this needs to go up for the Medal of Honor, standing there, single man army, battling back wave after wave of North Koreans. It wasn't put up. It it was suggested. There were there are accounts of people who said I was there when it was said that he needed to be put up for this. Um, the two officers involved were killed shortly thereafter before they were able to take action. But they asked his um, NCO in charge, I don't know if it was a squad leader or a platoon sergeant, and said, you write it up. Usually that's how it starts. Usually a ward is written from the immediate superior and, and pushed up from there. That man was a known anti-Semite and not only didn't much care for Reuben, but would intentionally send him on missions that he expected him to be killed or severely wounded. So it wasn't written up at all. And, and things continued. That, that's something we've talked about a little bit before where there's a, um, looking back, you think there's probably something like that that plays into it. In the Second World War, it was a major issue with uh, Japanese Americans. It's not super common where the troops can at least come together and say like, oh, I can tell you why it wasn't submitted. Um, here's how it went. But that guy hated him because he was Jewish. So it's unusual to have it this cut and dry. Um, but, but it appears that it was that cut and dry, which is, which is awful and too bad. Um, nonetheless, the battle continues. They continue to move back. And eventually what happens here is the North Koreans are extended. They are far away from their supply lines, right? They, they don't have supply. Their supply lines are at risk moving through South Korea. It takes them a further distance to get their men back to hospitals and to move reinforcements in and to move new ammunition up. The Americans are, are able, and the United Nations are able to reinforce very strongly right there at the port um, within the Pusan, Pusan perimeter. They also have the air power advantage and they start to hammer the North Koreans as more troops arrive and, you know, gain a little momentum. And next thing you know, there's a American landing around on the West coast in Incheon up near Seoul and North Korea is getting a little strung out. They start to retreat. I'm, I'm really summarizing a lot here. So there, there's a lot that happens in this time period. But nonetheless, to get to the, the, the next big part in Ruben's story, the Americans and the United Nations and South Korea are, are pushing the North Koreans back. And they don't stop at the 30th perimeter. 38, I'm sorry, at the 30th parallel. They continue pushing into North Korea. And the, the reason for that could be debated of, of we're going to just topple the North Korean government for, for now. We're going to punish them. We're going to whatever it might be. They push past the perimeter and it kind of sends off, uh, sends up alarm bells, especially with China. China shares a border with North Korea and North Korea is a friendly country to China. So if you and, and the way that North Korea sits as a peninsula only the only land border is with China. 
South Korea's border is with North Korea, and then it has um, ocean on three sides, sea on three sides. So China's looking at this and saying, we have a at least a friendly country in North Korea that we'd like to see them win this war. But I'll tell you what we don't want is a hostile country on our border. So as the United Nations crosses the 38th parallel, and next thing you know, has troops in Pyongyang, and North Korea looks like they're on the brink of collapse, China's getting concerned. Now, it's the Cold War, and one of the themes of the Cold War is that we don't have these major superpower fights, right? So the U.S. is not going to directly engage the Soviet Union. Right up there, in terms of major concerns throughout this entire conflict, is the U.S. and the United Nations really doesn't want to get into a direct engagement with China. That's We're five years removed from the Second World War, and that is the start of another world war. I mean, it's it's a massive conflict waiting to happen. And, and from the get-go, it's been a concern on the Korean Peninsula. But as we cross the 30th parallel, China becomes concerned that they're going to have a hostile government right on their border. And nobody's going to want that. So China is, is fi- trying to figure out how they're going to deal with this. And they can't put Chinese troops directly into... They, they kind of front. They move troops up along the border. But they're not going to try to go directly toe-to-toe with the American forces. So they decide they have to create something that'll help that. They rename some of their units the People's Volunteer Army. These are, in some cases, like they just changed the name of the unit. It's the same people in the same organization. And there's there's subtle differences. They, they, they try to shield it a little bit from being directly tied to the Chinese government. But these are 100% Chinese soldiers that are the way that it's presented is they volunteered to go fight for their fellow um, communists in North Korea. And China is saying, well, what can we do? We can't stop them from going to, to, to fight another country's war. But it's a turning point in the war when essentially we can mince words, but essentially China joins the war. Um, and, and by I guess we're getting towards uh, fall of 1950. So you have North Korea on the brink of defeat. And at this point, the United States is starting to I'm going to keep doing that. The United Nations and South Korea military is starting to outnumber North Korea. So you can see where this battle's headed. And then you blink and bam, China drops upwards of a million um, soldiers into the fight. And it just completely changes the outcome of the war. It's a different war at that point. So that first major, you know, China's not in the war. And Rubin's unit is pushing up north of of uh, Pyongyang and they have, they're kind of right on, right on the um, leading edge of the fight. And all of a sudden in late October, Chinese move, Chinese forces move across, across the river into North Korea. And on 30 October, there is a fight where um, these units are all of a sudden facing Chinese forces for the first time. And it's an eye opener because they think they've got the North Koreans on the run and it's the opposite. They're hit with a wall of manpower. Ruben's unit is at risk of being overrun. They are a little bit exposed. There's a little bit of a bulge in the American lines and they're facing the brunt of this Chinese attack. So as they're holding their position, getting ready to move back, one of the machine gunners 
uh, one machine gun position goes through three gunners. So it's so exposed and so deadly to the Chinese that they knock out three different gunners. Ruben mans that machine gun, gets on it despite the risk to hold the enemy at bay, once again, providing this rear guard action so his guys can retreat. This is kind of a story throughout Korea. It's advance, retreat, advance, retreat. His guys are, his whole company is able to start retreating, but in the process, Ruben is wounded. Now he stays on the gun and by doing so, saves the lives of, of, you know, dozens of his fellow soldiers who are able to move back into friendly UN lines and start to fight from another position because he's wounded and unable to really retreat. Ruben is captured by Chinese forces. He's transferred to a Chinese prisoner of war camp. So, you know, just to rehash here, this guy spent over a year in a German concentration camp, Mauthausen. Now he's fighting for the United States and finds himself in a Chinese prisoner of war camp. Now, I don't, I don't know how we could go about comparing the conditions of those two. That's a, that's pretty dark to dive into that. It's not, it's not good. The POW camp is not um, a good situation. There's people dying, there's sickness, there's disease, there's starvation. Um, It's, it's not a good place to be. And a lot of people lose hope in that situation, which is, which is understandable. Ruben was the guy that didn't let people lose hope. He's the one who kept providing support and kept saying, we're going to make it out and would treat the sick and would, would give up his area for the folks that needed it more, maybe needed more room, or he would sneak out at risk of his own life to bring back food for the prisoners that were, were starving. And he divided up evenly. He wouldn't just save it for himself. So he was in captivity for almost two and a half years and kept up the spirits of all involved. Can you imagine how important that is when we can look back and say, we know when, even if you know that it's only going to be two and a half years, how many people could hold on? But the the challenge is as a prisoner of war, you don't know if you're going to be there for um, a month, if you're going to be executed at any point, what happens if your side loses the war? Right? So it's one thing to think, well, what if the U S wins and and we'll get out of here in a few months, but Remember, the last thing a lot of these guys saw would have been their units being overrun by a vastly superior in numbers Chinese army. What happens if the U.S. loses? Are they ever going home? Those are the things running through the minds of the prisoners in these camps. And it's understandable how severe depression can kick in. And you just think of how important it would be to have somebody there that's that's talking positivity and saying, we're going to make it and, and, you know, let's band together. And, and I got to think that it's his experiences from Mauthausen that he learned how to be able to cope in these dire situations. But nonetheless, he would spend, you know, again, about two and a half years in captivity would survive, would be freed at the end of the war and would come back home to the United States. Now that, that was kind of it. Remember he was put up for a couple of wards, but it never went anywhere because of some major anti-Semitism issues within his direct chain of command. So that's not saying that across the entire army, there were issues. There were individual, well, I guess I shouldn't say that there were individual issues, but um, I, I certainly can't speak for the entire organization, I guess, as I 
get ready to dive into that. But in the 90s, the United States started to look into issues like this and said, well, hold on. Had there been any issues where people should have received an award and they didn't? And they started to find a few. Ruben's case was overlooked again, maybe is the right way to say it. But by 2001, they said, hold on. I think we've got a case here where this gentleman should have been awarded, should have received an award, should have at least received consideration and didn't. In 2005, President George Bush, President George Bush presented Tabor Rubin with the Medal of Honor for his actions for a whole stretch of things during the Korean War. So if you break them out, I would say there's there's at least three or four incidents, time periods where by itself that would be worthy of a Medal of Honor citation. His citation takes into account that original beating back wave after wave of the um, North Korean attackers as they retreat to the Pusan perimeter. It includes his time repelling the initial Chinese attack. So again, his unit can move back to uh, the UN lines. And then there's it, it also incorporates his time as a prisoner of war. Some of the prisoners that were with him said that his act, his his leadership, his his love during that time as a prisoner of war saved the lives of upwards of 40 American prisoners that were able to come home to their families. So another case, we've said this more than once, another case where I wish it would have happened earlier. Fortunately, it happened in his lifetime. So he was able to receive the award. His family knows about all that he did. Um, but just a crazy story. The amount of things this guy went through, um, Tabor Rubin. So awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions over a almost three-year period of time during the Korean War, starting from a concentration camp in World War II to the U.S. Army, fighting in Korea, then a Chinese prisoner of war camp finally coming home and being awarded the Medal of Honor in 2005. Tabor Rubin would pass away at the age of 86 in 2005. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.